I'm Richard Locke, Provost of Brown University, and this is Faculty in Focus, the show where I talk with some of Brown's most compelling faculty about the stories behind their research. Today, I'm talking to Professor Tricia Rose. Twenty-five years ago, Tricia Rose took the dissertation she wrote as a PhD candidate at Brown and turned it into a book called Black Noise, Rap Music and Black Culture in Contemporary America. Black Noise was the first comprehensive academic analysis of hip-hop culture. It won awards, was named among the top books of the year, and formed the foundation of how academics study and talk about hip-hop. Professor Rose went on to tackle a range of projects that, in one way or another, encouraged tough conversations about race and ethnicity in America. Professor Rose, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Tricia, let's start from the beginning. You were born in New York in 1962. You lived in Harlem until you were seven, and then your family moved to Co-op City in the Bronx. When did you first hear what we now call hip-hop? And how did you experience it? I heard hip hop in the basketball courts of Co-op City first. I actually was a basketball player. This is like 1974, 1975. So I'd be sitting on the sidelines because I didn't get picked too often, even though I had a mean three-point shot. So I'd be sitting there and I was just listening to people taking the B-side of cassette tapes and using the second cassette tape to, to rap over the B-side of like some disco hit. And everyone would sort of chip in with rhymes. And I was like, wow, this is really weird. Totally didn't think anything of it for five solid years until Rapper's Delight was on the radio. And I just, it just blew my mind. I thought, how did this get like in the radio? I had no sense of how music is produced. And so it just was fascinating to me. So that's really how it started. We're gonna talk about this later. But one of your more recent projects is about systemic racism. And I remember what you've told me in the past is that you wish someone had told you about that concept when you were young. What were you observing at that age that you didn't quite have a name for? Wow. Well, I was acutely aware of things that seemed sort of grossly unfair. It really didn't matter whether it was kids in school, things didn't seem fair. And certainly once I started visiting other schools, just how resource rich they were. The other thing was our library closed. And the whole explanation was because they don't have a budget, but other people's libraries in good communities stayed open all the time, had extra hours, had extra perks, you know, classes just for kids, so on and so forth. So from a kid's perspective, that one really stuck out. But I didn't understand why or when it was happening. I just knew everything from personal experience, which is how we, we live in the world unless someone gives us a master narrative. So the master narrative we've all been given is that you work hard, you get ahead, you're successful. And that story does not explain what we live in in this country. And then you went to this elite private high school in Manhattan. What was that like for you? Yeah, that was a mind-blowing experience. I thought I had the grasp of like, you know, middle-class people who might live on Long Island or New Rochelle. Like I thought people had normal like houses that you, you know, could sort of all see in one sitting. And then going to Dalton, which is the high school I went to, we're talking about that top one-tenth of a one percent. And then you went on to Yale to study right. sociology with a plan to become a lawyer. So how did you go from pre-law 
to pursuing a PhD about hip hop? Well, yeah, that was an unusual journey. Um, the reason I wanted to be a lawyer was because I wanted to address questions of inequity. And I, I thought that lawyers, that was their job, <laughs> which I learned is not primarily what they do. I, I guess I thought I'll be a great defense attorney. And if a person is brought up on false charges or they're going to get the death penalty, you know, I'll be able to stop that happening and this will be great. Once I realized that one-off process was incredibly necessary, but also profoundly draining and not really grasping the big picture that you can hopefully impact, that's when I started thinking about what are the ways that people gather and think, particularly African-Americans, because that's what my research was always about. You know, what are the ways that African-Americans create and live in oppressive conditions in ways that envision possibility, that create and transform the very circumstances they're faced with. And so that felt to me like this really important building block. Like if you can figure that out, you can survive a lot of things. And that felt much more creative to me and more interesting than just facing this ever onslaught of people who you really couldn't save. I don't have the temperament for that. You know, so that was... That was a lot of it. And then really the big thing was when I was in college, I wrote a senior paper on rap, a kind of cultural history of the form. That's when that whole set of ideas started to take off. Based on this paper that you wrote. Right. Then you go on and go to graduate school and decide you're going to do a dissertation on hip hop, a topic that had no academic tradition. No. Uh, and that most of the traditional disciplines also didn't have kind of the tools to really grapple with and, and analyze. So what gave you the courage to pursue such an innovative topic? Yeah. I mean, it was fairly reckless in retrospect. If I had a student with this plan, I would definitely probably try to discourage them. But here's what happened. The two years after college, I worked in public housing. Again, I was still interested in these issues, and I thought, maybe I'll go to law school, maybe I'll do it, you know. And um, I started doing research. I was living in New Haven still, and I would go to the music library, check the billboard charts, and during my lunch hour, I was still kind of interested in it. And then I thought, you know, if I'm going to go on and maybe do a PhD, they're probably going to try to talk me into writing in African-American studies on something like the Harlem Renaissance, with which I've read like 99 books already. And I thought, I could go off and be like a super rich corporate attorney. It, and, you know, if I'm going to do what I don't like, I might as well get really rich doing it. That was literally my attitude. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. So when I applied to PhD programs, I said in my essay, I'm going to write on hip hop. If you won't let me do that, do not let me in. How arrogant can you be? I don't know what got into me, but it was the right thing to do because Brown could see that there was potential. As you were working on this topic, did you ever have any doubts or well, uh, how did other academics <laughs> kind of respond, shape? try to redirect you yeah. during this process. Yeah, definitely. People tried to give me a lot of doubts, I'll tell you that. Great people. I mean, again, these were their concerns about trying to protect someone, right? I don't think there was any ill will, but there was a lot of discouragement. You can't write about this. We let you in because we knew you were really smart, but we figured you'd change your mind. You know, one of my advisors said to me after I went to New York to write, I came back to get a chapter approved, and he said, I thought you were going to go to New York and recognize how banal this is and come back with something else. I was like, holy cow, I've spent three years on this, and you thought I was going to just like, oh, I switched, I'm writing on poetry. So there were just so many moments like that. 
But here's one thing I did, which I, I don't think you know this either. I joined the graduate student speaker series so I could invite George Lipsitz, who was a very famous scholar whose book I'd read in a seminar. And I thought, if I could get him to come, I'll tell him about this thing. Because really, no one understood what I was talking about. And I said, if I can get him to come, then I'll share like a few pages with him. And maybe he'll tell me if I'm crazy or if this is going to make sense. I had a car, so I, I picked him up from the airport. And I was like, OK, I have an agenda. <laughs> I was like, I have an agenda. You don't know me. Here's who I am. I handed the man 12 pages. He sent me a 15-page letter back with amazing feedback and became really my informal off-campus advisor. That totally helped me put together what I was doing, and he totally got it and was just has been a great supporter all this time. But, you know, figuring out how to pull the pieces together, taking what was great about American studies, what I learned in the music department, what I learned in Africana here, I had great advisors there, plus George put together were just this sort of pastiche of, of excellence that made a huge difference. So in 1994, you actually published this uh, dissertation, which became an award-winning book, Black Noise. And it won the American Book Award. It received lots of positive reviews. And it's now considered an essential text of the topic. So what was it like to go from someone kind of trying to basically start a new field, getting mixed support as you were trying to do that, to suddenly being famous and successful? How did people respond to you differently then? I was extremely unaware of the kind of position I was in. I didn't really get what I would call on-the-ground mentoring. Like, when you go here, this is what you say, or this is what you don't say, or here's who you crack a joke with, and here's who you never, ever, ever crack a joke with. You know, there are things like that you need to know. Like, I cracked a joke in front of Toni Morrison, and she read me out like, I mean, and I was like, why didn't somebody tell me that I'm not supposed to do that? So that made it very complicated, right, to figure out how to, how to engage. So... Then there was this other curveball in your intellectual trajectory. So you have all the success around this terrific book on, on hip-hop. But your next book had nothing to do with hip-hop. Longing to tell black women, talking about sexuality and intimacy. So what made you decide to take on that topic? Yeah. I'll give you three central reasons. One, I much prefer new fields where the territory is open to lots of creative interpretation, where you don't have to spend all of your days arguing against what's already been done. It's just where my mind goes. My mind goes to the, well, no one's done that. Why is that, right? Or why have they not engaged on these things in this way? So that's one main thing. The second thing is hip hop was amazing, but it was also a box. And because it was marginal, because it was profoundly disrespected as a source of creativity, but also as an academic subject, I just feared that staying in this box forever would be exhausting and not as interesting for me intellectually. And the third reason was that the topic actually shares a number of traits with black noise in that it's examining the expressive capacity for people to take something largely unspoken in society and talk about it in a way that has the potential to be either empowering or at least to write a new story, right? So it's, you know, voices from the margins drives both frameworks. And it allowed me to expand on the gendered component of hip hop because a lot of what happens around gender in hip hop flows into longing to tell. So it feels totally different when you experience it, but 
from my lived experience in my own career, they actually flow into each other more, more than you would think. But then in 2008, you went back to hip hop. Yeah, well, so here's what happened. I still did hip hop talks every week. And I got the same 10 questions in different forms, different languages, you know, different generational iterations, different slang, but they were pretty much the same, you know, types of questions about, doesn't it destroy black culture? Um, you know, isn't, it didn't, hip hop didn't create sexism. So I just answered these questions over and over. And then I thought, okay, I'm just gonna write one more book because I already know the answers to these questions. And then I will not write on hip hop anymore. And then I started thinking in Hip Hop Wars why it was important to rescue the way we were thinking about hip hop from marketplace logic. Because the craziest thing happened while I was writing Longing to Tell and still, you know, paying attention to hip hop. Hip hop skyrocketed, became the number one commercial genre in the country and around the world. It just became this amazing global juggernaut. And then you found that the stories people told in the genre were actually narrower and narrower, especially in the U.S., which was the place everyone looked for the inspiration, right? So I was really fascinated by that problem, and I wanted people to see the politics of, of the space, right? That it wasn't just people telling whatever stories come to mind, but that they were being marketed, and that that sense of focusing on gang culture and focusing on violence and focusing on hypersexuality of black women became the defining characteristic of black culture itself. So basically hip hop wars was a war over race in America. It was about saying, look, this is how the war about race and hierarchy is being waged. It's being waged on the battleground of this art form. So just slightly s switching topics. Uh, when you and I first met uh, a few years back, you had recently been appointed to lead the Brown Center for the Study of Race and Ethnicity in America. And I was especially struck by your plan to take on what you call third rail topics, those thorny and contentious issues that no one really wants to talk about. How can we do that? I mean, that's still the question that I think we're struggling yeah. to answer. We're struggling more than we were when we met. and. You know, I'd probably have a different formula then than I would now because there was a set of assumptions about how you would have a conversation <laughs> back in 2012 that I'm not sure is in place anymore. The point was to say things like affirmative action, things like voter suppression, things like mass incarceration, which at that time was much more of a third rail topic. These issues are hot spots where if you can break open people's misperceptions about what's going on, then you have the potential to build a relationship that crosses racial boundaries more fluidly and more genuinely and more productively. Doesn't mean everyone has to agree in the end. In fact, that's not the goal. The goal is to use the power of the third rail, which is the, the metaphor being the train, the, the energy source for the train, that's instead of it being so dangerous that you simply stay away from the tracks as you do in New York, instead you also want to be on the train, right? You want to have that energy pushed toward a good purpose. And, you know, I guess my hope was with Third Rail that we would give students in particular a richer sense of what's at stake when we're having certain conversations. You know, I had so many aha moments in college and in graduate school that were so important, like oh, that's what this conversation's really about. So that was what I had in mind, to try to create a model for that kind of conversation. Another one of the projects that we talked about when we first met 
was to come up with a animated film around systemic racism. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what your concept was and how you were envisioning this animated film and where you've gone with that project? Before I got to the animated sort of video part of the project, I started trying to figure out how to explain the story of why one act of discrimination in one place does not explain the full weight of what's actually happened, right? So you think about Kelly Williams Bolar, who I wrote a piece on, who was accused of stealing education by sending her kids to a white township outside of Akron, Ohio. So I started unpacking all of the things that were going on around her case, and I realized that it was really a blueprint for how you, you can't explain systemic discrimination through focusing on one piece of the puzzle. You have to look at the whole puzzle together in, a, in an interlocking way. And I thought, maybe if I did this in a video format, it would have a layer of narrative with visual layers that would complexify and multidimensionally explain the process. I'm still planning on doing the videos, but I think a handbook is really where I'm going to start, which is what I'm writing right now. I remember that as you were developing this project, you had this visual of different gears, yeah. each in a different sphere, and how they were kind of rotating in a way that kind of kept the whole system going. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what were in the different gears and maybe an example of how sort of the way that it works in an unequal way is having an impact on, say, school quality or policing right. or job yeah. opportunity. So. I came up with this gear metaphor because I wanted to sort of show how policies in one part of life, say housing policies, impact with spheres like education, wealth, and criminal justice strategies and policing processes, that when you put them together, you can begin to see how profoundly interlocking they actually are. So if you just sort of begin with housing, you know, we all know America's quite segregated, but we don't know that there's been many, many different kinds of policies to guarantee that segregation, but more importantly, to decapitalize black communities across very many different strategies. Sometimes it was not lending, which we know is redlining. Sometimes it was subprime lending, which is extracting whatever wealth could have been accruing. There were other policies like that as well. So you look at this process and you say, okay, What's the intergenerational impact of this decapitalization? Well, the wealth gap is profound. It's something like $112,000 on average for a white family to about $5,000 for a black family. Most of that's homeowner gap. Well, what do we do with money like that? We pay property taxes on those houses, and those property taxes fund education. Once you have economically fragile neighborhoods and you have lower employment and more petty street crime— you now deploy the police to police a completely, clearly homogeneous community. If you're white, even if you're poor, you, you're not policed anywhere near as vigorously and intensely and violently. You also then begin to see policing in the schools. Half of all preschool expulsions are black students, even though they make up something like 12% of the preschool population. Did you hear me, Rick? Preschool. I'm like, what could you possibly be doing in preschool? I'm like, I, I, anyway, I digress. And then you have media narratives that become, well, like I think of it as the oil that oils the wheels of the system, a constant narrative refrain that criminalizes black people, that 
has been a longstanding strategy immediately following emancipation. As soon as black people were not property, they were criminals in America's consciousness. So the narratives fuel the policing. It fuels the logic of the schools. Well, they just are not as bright, right? You know, they don't have other issues in the schools and other concerns. That's what the, the story is largely about. It's both about the facts, but since we know facts don't fundamentally change people's minds, it's also about the story. So people have another story they can possibly tell about how, why things are the way they are that isn't just about blame, but about explanation so that we can figure out other ways to fix this because it's gonna need, we're going to need everybody. This is a huge problem. Absolutely. So in 2016, you were appointed as the associate dean of the faculty for special initiatives. And what that essentially means is that you're working closely with the dean of the faculty to recruit and retain and support brown faculty from historically underrepresented groups, or what we call hugs. So first, tell us, you know, when we talk about historically underrepresented groups, who are we talking about? How is that work going? And what have you learned in this more administrative role that maybe shapes not only your scholarship, but what we need to do to somehow address these issues of systemic racism? So historically underrepresented groups refers specifically to groups of people like Chicanos and Mexican-Americans, Native Americans, African-Americans, who have been significantly both excluded, marginalized, under-resourced, underprivileged in any number of ways. One of the ways that happens for faculty is that you have a much smaller pipeline for people who have advanced degrees than you would expect to have percentage. If you have a high dropout rate, if you have people who are sort of steering young people of color into areas that are not about research and so on. Ironically, the work that we've been able to do shows that there is actually a pretty robust pipeline comparatively to what our expectations were. We've made it unnecessarily small by not really addressing the quiet practices that reproduce hierarchy in our hiring. This I could talk about this forever, but the most important thing I've learned is the same thing I've learned about systemic racism, is that it's going on in a process that looks like it's not going on. Right? So what systemic racism teaches you is that nobody's calling people names, talking about, you ain't getting no loan, you know, get out of here. Like, skedaddle. Like, that would be like, oh, fantastic, systemic racism, check. Instead, they're like, hey, you know, we're going to give you a loan, we're going to charge you, you know, 12%, and that's actually like three times what everyone else, but what do you know, right? And you get, okay, good to see you, Bob, thanks, we're looking forward to meeting you the next week. And you think, oh, I got a loan, not bad. So it's the same thing. We find ourselves in a situation where, say, well, we really reviewed so-and-so, and we looked at them carefully, and this is just not going to be a good fit. If I ever hear good fit one more time, I just don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I'm like, what is this? Is this a widget? What do you mean fit? Can you be more specific? The other thing I've learned is that people who are experts rely on the idea that they know everyone else who's an expert because knowing the field is part of the value of their own expertise. So when you bring them people who they don't know, they're defensive because I know everybody. I know everybody who does fill in the blank. And if I don't know them, they can't possibly be worthy. So the fact that you found them, a random individual in the dean's office, means that they must not be valuable. So I'm coming to this defensively, right? And that, that's the tenor we get. But when you look at social networks and intellectual networks, you find they're just as segregated as regular networks. So white people have a network that is on average 1% black. 
That's including neighbors and barbecue members. That's not counting ones with PhDs. So of course they're not gonna find a pipeline of black and brown scholars in their fields if they've got a 1% chance in their whole lives. So what we found was that the process sets itself up to eventually lead you basically to the one white guy they were gonna probably hire anyway, not all the time. But there's a natural process. I've seen it everywhere I've worked. This is not a brown specific issue whatsoever. And that is extremely complicated because nobody, I don't feel, is trying to do something wrong, at least not most, right? Some maybe so, I guess, but the vast majority are just sort of doing what they normally do, following along and letting the system reproduce itself. I have one last question. You gave me advice when I started this job and we started working together on diversity, that this is more going to be a marathon. It's not going to be a sprint. And I just wanted to know, how do you maintain your optimism in the face of experiencing persistent biases, racism, yeah. and even uh, racial violence? How do, you, how do you keep optimistic, keep going uh, in the face of that? Well, whew. honestly, I don't imagine a victory of a perfect world. I'm not aiming for that because that's really not ever going to happen. There's a little, I just think humans have taught us that throughout all of human history. So what I focus on is the sense of possibility that people's commitments make. So it's like a ripple effect. I focus on, you know, what we've done at Brown, what, what Brown is becoming is about your commitment, you know, the dean of the faculty's commitment, Chris Paxson's fundamental great commitment as the president. These commitments are really important. So I'm inspired when I see people be courageous, do the right thing when it costs them something. So I count all that. That's like, I put that in my little basket, like, holy cow, there's real possibility, right? By emphasizing those things and figuring out how to help people be that courageous, right? When they wouldn't have easily been that way, just automatically helps me a lot. The other thing is, this would be for listeners who, you know, get caught up in social media watching video after video of horrible police contact. You know, I'd try not to repeat that kind of visual information over and over again. It's very difficult to process. It's trauma. You know, figuring out how and when you're going to engage, being strategic with the depths of what the situation is. And the third thing is being really honest with people without necessarily being all worked up. I think you just come to the point where you have to figure out how to see people simultaneously as individuals and as members of groups really fully, right? And so sometimes that member of a group thing makes people do and say wacky things and things you might need to correct, but they're also individuals and they're people. The most important thing that racism does, and sexism does it too, it robs us of our capacity to see each other in our fullness and to appreciate each other. So the best thing we can do is reverse that. That's the best thing we can do. Well, thank you, Trisha Rose, uh, for this wonderful conversation and for everything that you do here at Brown. Thanks so much, Rick. It's been a great pleasure, and thanks for all you do too. You've been listening to Faculty in Focus, brought to you by the Office of the Provost at Brown University. Our show is edited and produced by Megan Hall, Brown Class of 04. Sound design and theme music is by Tom Van Buskirk, Brown Class of 04. 
and I'm Richard Locke, Provost of Brown University.